Hi, everybody. You're listening to Hitting the Mark. My name is Ray Carr, along with Cindy Verbalin, and we're going to be hitting the mark with none other than Jeffrey Mark. And today's episode will feature Ethel Merman. Welcome, everybody. Ethel Merman was born Ethel Agnes Zimmerman, and she was born in Astoria, Queens. But, Jeffrey, there's so much more to Ethel than that. Please uh, inform us and give us a background on who she really was. It's a funny thing. You know, Ethel Merman was such a New Yorker. She had just New York all over her psyche. And when she told about her background, first of all, she never said she was from Queens, which is a borough of New York City. She always insisted she was born in Long Island. She totally obscured the actual year she was born so that she could appear to be younger in person. And she also obscured the fact that she was not, as her publicity would suggest, an overnight success. She worked for a few years. Uh, her, her father and mother were immigrants, her father from Germany, her mother from Scotland, and uh, Zimmermann with two ends at the end of the name uh, was where she was as a child, the child of ethnic people who had come to this country but had money, meaning they weren't poor, they weren't living in a ghetto, they lived what was unusual for the time, a nice middle-class life. There was a piano in the home, her father played, and Ethel sang. Her parents probably could have written a book about how to give a child self-esteem. They instilled into Ethel hard work, faith, and that there was nothing she couldn't do if she put her mind to it. So by the time she was in high school, she was already singing professionally. In high school, she uh, didn't take what I consider a normal high school course. She took a course that used to be available to females only, which is you didn't learn about languages and you didn't learn about good literature. You learned how to type and take dictation and be a secretary because in those days, that was one possible entree to getting married. And that was always the end game for girls back then, getting married. You can't count, but you can get married, get married. You've never read a great piece of literature in your whole life, but you can get married, get married. <laughs> well, that was not Ethel's plan at all, but she took the training and became a secretary. Interestingly, she began working for a, a company that made breaks. For, for, for trucks and things. And somehow she became the personal private secretary to the guy who was in charge. Now, when I talk about Ethel all over the world, uh, she gave great secretary is my answer to how she got so high up so early in her career because she hardly worked. Her boss often was not there, often came in late, and she would, she had a cot in the ladies' room and would take off her dress and take naps. Because at night, she was going out and singing in little nightclubs and put together a vaudeville act and was exhausted. But somehow her boss didn't mind. Now, was she having sex with him? Perhaps. But whatever she was doing, she was using it to her advantage because she really wanted to sing. As time went on, she developed a unique style. We're talking about the 1920s. 
So the music is jazz inspired. Ethel was never going to be an opera singer or an operetta singer. She wasn't a soprano. She had a unique way of looking at the great American songbook that was just starting then. And those are the kinds of songs that she sang. Nothing that she made famous yet, but she became known around New York City for singing songs like Body and Soul, uh, th those kinds of torchy songs. She'd sing them straight through once and then she'd change it up. She'd add a little rhythm to it. She would, what she would call a burlesque of the original intent of the song. And it worked for her. She had enormous breasts, long legs, not a beautiful face, but an expressive face, uh, long brown curly hair. She was hot and she was hot on stage. The woman developed amazing, amazing stage presence. And she got into vaudeville. The only person I've ever heard of who never left the general New York area while doing vaudeville. She didn't tour the country. She didn't play Canada. She just played vaudeville houses around New York City. She even had her own radio show for a while before there was network radio, just a local little 15 minute radio show every day in New York City. So she was getting, it's not like she was unknown. It was like, oh, that, 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 that Merman girl. She chopped off the Zim and the extra N to make Merman because she wanted to call herself Ethel Hunter. Mm. But her father was like, no, you don't. Our name is Zimmerman. So Zimmerman became Merman. That was acceptable. And she got herself booked into the Brooklyn Paramount Theater in New York City, which was the major vaudeville theater of Brooklyn, New York. It was in 1930, a stage presentation house. Vaudeville was already dying. So in many places, these, these huge, gorgeous palaces of theaters began showing films. Talking pictures had just started and they would have a stage show in between the showings of the feature film. That's what a stage presentation house was. Mostly film part stage show. And she was a singer in this stage show. In fact, she was the hit of the show. At that time, as Ethel loved to talk about, they were casting for a new Georgian Ara Gershwin musical called Girl Crazy. Ginger Rogers was already signed to be the star of the show. And Ginger's mother thought herself to be a great teacher of talent. She thought of herself as a talent scout. And she went to the Brooklyn Paramount and saw Merman and thought she was wonderful for the second female lead of the show. And then the producer of the show, Bitten Friedrich, went out to Brooklyn, saw Ethel, and as she liked to say, he caught my act. And he arranged for Ethel and her pianist to go visit George Gershwin. She told the story word for word the same way year after year after year. I can sit here right now and tell you. So off we went to see George Gershwin, who lived at Riverside Drive and 75th Street. Not only was I in awe of seeing the great George Gershwin, 
I was in awe of the apartment building. She spoke with a very heavy New York accent. Uh, and it was true. She was nonplussed at being, you know, getting an invitation to his house. George and Ira lived in the roof garden penthouse. So George had one side, Ira had the other, and the, the whole roof of the building was theirs. They had cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. George asked Merman to sing a few of the songs from her nightclub act. And her pianist played and she sang. He really liked it a lot. So he sat down and played three songs he had written for her character and said, Miss Merriman, if there's anything about these songs you don't like, I'd be most happy to change them. Or at least she said he said that. And one of the songs, in fact, two of the songs he played that night ended up stopping the show. So Ginger Rogers was the star of the show. But even she said, yeah, I was there <laughs> and I had some wonderful Gershwin things to do. But the show, once we opened, there was no doubt that a, a superstar had been born. And she got to sing in the orchestra pit with Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, Lionel Hampton, all the greats of jazz were in the orchestra pit playing for Girl Crazy. And... Uh, it was, just a, it was just magical. So right towards the end of the first act, Merman went out and sang a song called Sam and Delilah. And the, the, the lyrics were very like, ooh, for that time, you know. She starts off, the first line out of her mouth was, Delilah was a floozy. You didn't hear words like floozy on Broadway. You know, she didn't give a damn. Uh, they talk about her seducing this guy. And it, it was a song sung to cowboys because the show took place in a dude ranch. And it stopped the show. As soon as she opened her mouth and began to sing, it was like this <gasps> from the audience. And she thought she'd done something wrong. She couldn't understand, like, yeah, I'm singing a song. What's the point? But less than a minute later, she sang, I got rhythm. And that completely stopped the show. She had to repeat the song five times opening night. Wow. And she appreciated the audience appreciation, but she didn't own it. The next day she went to George Gershwin's house for lunch. And George laid out the reviews on the floor and like on their knees on the floor was showing her what all the papers had said about her back when there were all 11 daily newspapers in New York. And that's where you got your reviews. And every one of them, they were, they were tripping over themselves to find better words to describe what a hit she was. And she, she did go from being a well-known New York songstress to being a star overnight. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing that she had that, that charisma and that courage to be able to go through with that and, you know, just take the bull by the horn, so to speak. Her opinion always was, why should I be nervous? I know my lines. I know my lyrics. They're the ones who should be nervous. They're spending money to be here. They should be nervous. They're not getting their money's worth. What do I got to be nervous about? I'm getting paid. 
So she never had anxiety. When she walked out on a stage, she owned it. It's like, okay, here I am. I'm going to entertain you. Everybody stand back. Here I go. And uh, it worked. And it worked in 15 hit Broadway musical productions. There has never been another performer with that kind of success rate. One of her shows only ran about four months, but it still made money. It was considered a success because the backers got their money back, plus they made a profit. But her shortest, you know, was a year. They all ran. Every show introduced not one of them didn't have a song that didn't become a standard. Gershwin's, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, Stephen Sondheim, Julie Stein. The people who worked with her, just one was better than the next. And they all wrote these things specifically for her. Only Girl Crazy, the songs had been written first. They altered I Got Rid of for Ethel. But after that, every show she was in, we're writing a song for Ethel Merman. Let's write to her best notes. Let's write to her best, the best possible way to present Miss Merman. And the audiences just couldn't get enough of her. Did she have a ritual that she would do before a performance, a certain meal that she would eat or something like that? Yes, as a matter of fact. Uh, before every performance, at about five o'clock, in the afternoon, she would have a rare steak, uh, a baked potato and a green salad. She always felt that she needed a lot of protein to keep up her energy level. She wasn't a coffee drinker, she was a tea drinker, so she drank tea and just went to the, to the, to the, to the theater, whichever theater it happened to be, and just put on her makeup, which was very heavy. But, you know, Broadway makeup is very, very much heavier than movie makeup and you know, do her hair and get on the costume and go. She never even warmed up her voice. Oh, she, wow. I'm, I'm doing this every day. She felt that singers who warmed up their voices were using up their voice, straining their voices to hit notes. I disagree with her, but it's how she felt. So she never warmed up her voice in between performances. Hmm. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that they were writing songs for her in every show. I, If I'm remembering correctly, Sondheim, when he did Gypsy, didn't know whether she could act. And when he wrote Everything's Coming Up Roses, he wrote it in such a way that if she couldn't sing or act, it was going to work because you had Louise and Herbie in the back going, no, and you had her up front going, yes, and he said, fortunately, she could sing. Am I remembering that correctly? Stephen Sondheim had kind of a love-hate relationship with Ethel. Um, he didn't really want to do Gypsy. He'd already done West Side Story, and he felt he wanted to write his own music. Mm -hmm. But Ethel had done a show right before, which we should talk about, after we discussed this, called Happy Hunting. Bad composers, and the show still ran for a year. But she did not want to trust anybody who was not had a long track record. So she had nixed Sondheim writing the music and the lyrics. 
yeah. and brought in Julie Stein. They brought in Julie Stein because she was one of the producers of the show who she knew could write for her. Um, so Sondheim was like, you know, what's all the fuss about? And then when he saw what she could do, he was like, oh my goodness gracious. Boy, did I underestimate her. Because most of Merman's musicals were light and fluffy. They were tongue-in-cheek, usually a lot of double entendre sex jokes. Her, her shows were written, as she used to say, for the tired businessman. The guy who'd worked really hard all day long and his wife had pushed him into seeing a show and he had to have an early dinner and change his clothes and take a shower and travel to the theater. She wanted that guy to have a good time. So the libretto of the shows always had lovely little dirty jokes all the way through them. There was always some sort of inference that she or somebody on stage was having sex, most likely with someone they weren't really married to. And the fun came from the double entendres, the what we call lappy jokes, jokes that went right into people's laps. You didn't have to figure out what the joke was. It was right there for you. Ethel was a wonderful comedy actress. She could deliver a punchline with the best of them. She could make a face or use an intonation in her voice. If you watch, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Yeah. And watch her steal that film from a hundred other comedians. That's how good her comedy delivery is. And I've always felt that good comedy and singing, there's a connection because there's a timing involved of, of singing something exactly at the right second, holding a note just long enough. It's the same thing with comedy timing. You have to know, you almost feel it in your bones. And Ethel had that talent. They figured out after her first show, that she was a funny lady. Her part in Girl Crazy was almost non-existent, which was not unusual in 1930. If they found somebody who sang well, they just bring the girl out and have her sing a song for no reason almost, and she'd go away. But the few lines she had got laughs. So they kept expanding and expanding and expanding her part. They learned early on. So all of her shows, gave Ethel a chance to be really, really funny. But Annie Get Your Gun and Girl Crazy, uh, uh, Annie Get Your Gun and Gypsy, really gave Ethel a chance to act, to, to, to be sad, to have pathos, to really sink her teeth into a part and not just play, as she used to call them, one of those brassy dames I always played. And she was magnificent in Gypsy. You know, I, I, the timing. There's a part of the show where baby June says, you know, mommy, how come I've had four daddies? Mm -hmm. And everybody who plays the part goes, because you're lucky. Full of energy. When Merman did it, mommy, how come I had four daddies? Hmm. Because you're lucky. <laughs> a different laugh altogether. When Ethel did Hello, Dolly, all the songs she did, they didn't change the arrangements, but they changed the tempos to suit her. And you know what? She was right. Well, she had a unique ability to kind of read a situation that was kind of between the lines. And she oh, was able talent. to... 
Ray, it's talent. It's inborn God-given talent. Merman was a genius at what she did. With all deference to my friend, Mary Martin, who was wonderful on stage and magical. Uh, there's never been a woman who could hold a stage and do what she did. She didn't just own the stage, she owned the whole theater. They used to say, Ethel held a note and the theater walls pulled back three inches to make room for it. But she knew how to do that. She knew how to incisively hit the notes because she wasn't screeching and she wasn't singing operatically. She just was like a bullet. Those notes hit like a trumpet. People said there was a trumpet in her voice. Where did she learn that? It wasn't learned. It was something that was in her that just came out. We've got, with I got rhythm because I got rhythm, the structure of the song, and this is George Gershwin's favorite song he wrote. There is a little verse up front to introduce the song. She sings the song through. It's a happy peppy song. And the second time through, she's holding these very long notes while she extends her fingers out. Like she's not quite sure what she's doing while she's holding the notes. Over and over and over again. So these long, belted, incisive notes became the hook that she hung her career on. It wasn't that she couldn't sing sweetly. She could, but so could everybody else. So she did what only she could do. And all the ladies who have come since were what are called the big belters. Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, Edie Gourmet, Lena Horne. It's, it all goes back to Ethel. She led the way and then the ladies began using what she brought to the table and making it their own. But Ethel was there first and probably best. Well, did Ethel have a vision of where she wanted to end up? Ethel always wanted to be a movie star. She felt that vaudeville and Broadway were there to propel her into the movies. But her movies didn't work. And for good reasons, I think. She was with the wrong people. It has always been my contention that if Ethel had landed at MGM, she would have had a long, successful movie career because they would have presented her exactly like she had been on Broadway. They would have taken, like they with Judy Garland, the best parts of her and written songs for her to fit her voice, to fit her style. Unfortunately, most of her films were shot by 20th Century Fox. They were used to Alice Faye. They were used to Betty Grable. They were used to a, a whole different kind of musical presentation. Ethel didn't fit their blonde girl next door, small voice who danced kind of musicals. And because she didn't fit into them and they didn't get the best songwriters for her and she wasn't the star, her films suffered. She tried again in the 50s because when they did the film version of Call Me Madam, it was a big hit, a big hit. Uh, and they wanted to follow that up and it, it didn't work. You're listening to Hitting the Mark. My name is Ray Carr with Cindy Verbalant and of course the man that always hits the mark, Jeffrey Mark. 
talking about Ethel Merman.